Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, October 14th, 2023. The only podcast that separates the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Scott Wallace with today's top stories. Israel warns over one million civilians to immediately evacuate northern Gaza. Human Rights Watch alleges possible use of white phosphorus munitions by Tel Aviv. The U.S. and Qatar block Iran's access to $6 billion from the prisoner swap. While the White House and Ron DeSantis alike criticize Trump's Hamas comments. Pro-Palestinian protests become heated in France and other nations. Russia launches a major offensive in eastern Ukraine. Jim Jordan is the GOP's latest nominee to make a run for House Speaker. A report states that the U.S. must prepare for a two-front war with Russia and China. U.S. Senator Bob Menendez is indicted as a foreign agent for Egypt. And Japan seeks to revoke the Unification Church's legal status. Our top story, Israeli troops conduct localized raids while Palestinians evacuate northern Gaza. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Financial Times, CNN, Reuters, The Times of Israel, and the Associated Press. The Israeli military stated that its troops and tanks carried out localized raids into Gaza on Friday, the first announcement of a shift from an air war to ground operations to attack rocket crews and try to locate hostages taken by the ruling Hamas militant group. Additionally, the Israel Defense Forces announced that widespread airstrikes were being carried out against many Hamas sites across the Gaza Strip shortly after the group claimed responsibility for a volley of rockets fired towards central Israel. This comes as Palestinians in northern Gaza have begun a mass exodus after Israel urged more than one million civilians to evacuate toward the south of the densely populated enclave, in a further indication of a looming Israeli ground offensive. The United Nations warned that such an order could have dire consequences as relocating all civilians in the northern half of Gaza within 24 hours would be impossible. According to its humanitarian office, more than 400,000 people have already been made homeless in the enclave. Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas has denounced this move as a forced displacement that would amount to another Nakba, a term that Palestinians used to refer to the foundation of Israel in 1948 when thousands were expelled or fled. While it's unclear if or when the Israel Defense Force plans to launch a potential ground incursion into Gaza, Israel has been massing hundreds of thousands of troops, reservists, and military equipment at the border while ramping up its siege and airstrikes on the enclave. Thank you, Scott, for the facts and the update on the situation in the Middle East. We're going to start off our first round of narrative spins with a pro-Israel narrative provided by JNS. Israel has lived up to its commitment to protect civilians in armed conflict, calling residents in northern Gaza to move south and not to approach the border with Israel. Yet Hamas has ordered civilians not to flee so they can be used as human shields to protect its military infrastructure in civilian areas, while terrorists hide in and under residential buildings. And contrast that with this pro-Palestine narrative from Middle East Eye. This has all the makings of a second Nakba catastrophe by forcing millions of Palestinians to head toward the border with Egypt and return to northern Gaza only when they are told to. Netanyahu is dangerously trying to provoke a regional war to change the strategic reality of the Middle East 
So this campaign should be stopped on humanitarian and geopolitical grounds. And occasionally we get statistics-based nerd narratives from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community. The nerds have an opinion on this story, and they think that there's a 65% chance that Israeli forces will reach the Palestinian Legislative Council building in Gaza before November 7th of 2023. And I just saw uh, also like a, a bunch of people from Egypt walking in water and supplies to the people in Palestine. Yeah. Like uh, on foot, on foot crossing the right. border. Right. And these are right. Yeah. That's a, I mean, that's, I mean, never let a good crisis go to waste. It does give you a chance. It does give people a chance to, you know, be compassionate and help others. But that's a small silver lining in this, in this quagmire. Very much so. Yeah. And continuing with news from the Middle East, a report from the Human Rights Watch states that Israel used white phosphorus munitions in Gaza and Lebanon. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Human Rights Watch, Newsweek, Washington Post, Al Jazeera, and Reuters. Israel has used white phosphorus munitions in recent attacks in both Gaza and Lebanon, Human Rights Watch, or the HRW, said in a report issued Thursday. While the use of white phosphorus, a self-igniting chemical that burns at extremely high temperatures, is permitted under international law when used on battlefields, its use against the civilian population is generally considered a war crime. HRW said it had verified videos taken in Lebanon and Gaza on October 10th and 11th of 2023, respectively, showing multiple airbursts of artillery-fired white phosphorus over the Gaza city port and two rural locations along the Israel-Lebanon border. It added that it had interviewed two people in Gaza whose descriptions of the strikes were consistent with the use of white phosphorus. The Washington Post also reported that it had verified the video from Gaza, which appeared to show white phosphorus use. However, after approaching the Israeli Defense Forces for comment, the IDF said they are currently not aware of the use of weapons containing white phosphorus in Gaza. Meanwhile, Israel on Friday issued an order to all civilians living in Gaza City and in the north of Gaza Strip to evacuate prompting speculation Israel is preparing to launch a ground invasion. The UN said the order affects 1.1 million people, adding that it was impossible for such a movement to take place without devastating humanitarian consequences. Elsewhere, ahead of a meeting with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas issued a statement condemning attacks on civilians from both sides of the conflict. Abbas, who is not affiliated with Hamas, has taken criticism for not condemning its actions. Abbas said, We reject the practices of killing civilians or abusing them on both sides because they contravene morals, religion, and international law. Thanks for expanding on this story, Adam. We have a pro-establishment narrative from the Washington Post. White phosphorus has legitimate military uses. More details, such as the intended target of the alleged attacks, as well as the accuracy of these reports, need to be established before we rush to the conclusion that Israel is committing war crimes. And Human Rights Watch has an establishment critical narrative spin. Gaza is one of the most densely populated places in the world. Israel's use of white phosphorus is clearly a war crime in this context, violating international law and unnecessarily putting civilians at risk of harm. And we have another prediction from Metaculus. This nerd narrative says there's a 30% chance 
that a state-based conflict between Israel and Iran will cause at least 1,000 deaths before the year 2025. The U.S. and Qatar block Iran from the $6 billion fund for the prisoner swap. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS News, BBC News, The New York Times, NPR Online News, Reuters, and the Associated Press. According to a U.S. official, the U.S. and Qatar have come to an agreement that Iran will not be able to access the $6 billion in Iranian funds that were unblocked as part of a prisoner swap in September. In September, the U.S., via negotiations mediated by Qatar and represented by Switzerland, agreed to swap five Iranian citizens and transfer $6 billion from South Korea to be held by Qatar on Iran's behalf in exchange for five U.S. citizens. The officials claim, having spoken on the condition of anonymity, comes as the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken revealed on Thursday that none of the funds that have now gone to Qatar have actually been spent or accessed in any way by Iran. While Iran's mission to the U.N. has claimed that the U.S. cannot renege on the deal, it's reported that the U.S. has made the decision due to allegations of Iran's involvement in Hamas' recent attack on Israel. Though Blinken has emphasized the money was only going to be used for humanitarian reasons, Hamas' attack prompted Republicans to accuse the Biden administration of going soft on Iran. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said, You can say certain funds can't be used, but you can use other funds that may be freed up as a result. Meanwhile, White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby reaffirmed that the Iranian government was already never going to see a dime of the funds, with the money only meant to be put towards the purchase of humanitarian goods. Thank you, Scott. We're going to start this round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative provided by The Blade. Iran must be treated as a threat which is why this is a sound policy by both Qatar and the U.S. Iran continues to not only fund Hamas, but also Hezbollah in Lebanon, as well as various Russian mercenaries. Alongside the clear success of returning five U.S. citizens, the U.S. must remind Iran that its international and domestic behavior must align with international values. And the Islamic Republic News Agency brings us the establishment critical narrative. Rumors concerning Iran's freed funds are baseless. The U.S. does not hold the power to block the funds that rightfully belong to Tehran. The spreading of such a narrative merely discredits the legitimacy of any news outlet that decides to promote the story. And the nerds think that there's a 1% chance that the U.S. will rejoin the Iran nuclear deal by 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. I'm, I'm glad I'm not in government. Yeah, exactly. That's why I'm on uh, this side of the microphone. That's why I do a podcast. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Equally as lucrative. President Biden and Ron DeSantis criticized Donald Trump's Hezbollah comments. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Post, NBC, Reuters, and Washington Examiner. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has faced bipartisan criticism following comments made on Wednesday night in which he described Hezbollah, an Iran-backed group based in Lebanon on Israel's northern border, which fired missiles into an Israeli military site earlier this week, as smart. Trump's full comment was, quote, And then two nights ago, I read all of Biden's security people, can you imagine, national defense people, and they said, gee, I hope Hezbollah doesn't attack from the north, because that's the most vulnerable spot. I said, wait a minute, you know, 
Hezbollah is very smart. They're all very smart. In response to the comments, White House spokesperson Andrew Bates claimed that such a statement was, quote, dangerous and unhinged. Trump was also condemned by Republican presidential hopeful the Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who posted on social media platform X that the comment was, quote, absurd. DeSantis also took issue with a further comment made by Trump in which the former president claimed that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, quote, let us down by not supporting the assassination of Iranian General Qassem Soleimani. Trump further alleged that Netanyahu then tried to take credit for the assassination. In response, the Trump campaign issued a statement that claimed the former president was, quote, clearly criticizing the Biden administration for telegraphing an area susceptible to an attack, adding that smart does not equal good. Thanks, Adam. We have an anti-Trump narrative from Raw Story. Trump's tone-deaf comments are a liability to not only himself, but to the Republican Party as a whole. While he praises militant groups like Hezbollah, his congressional allies on Capitol Hill are hindering the U.S.'s ability to help its closest ally in the Middle East. This is not the look of a competent leader or political party. And that's going to be countered with a pro-Trump narrative by Morning Star. Context is everything, which is why it's deceptive to quote only one word out of an entire speech Trump gave. Trump was responding to Biden officials' careless comments, rightly saying it can't be assumed that Hezbollah is dumb and wouldn't attack a vulnerable part of Israel. He was simply acknowledging the failures of both U.S. and Israeli intelligence, not patting terrorist groups on the back. French police fire a water cannon and tear gas at banned pro-Palestinian protests. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, Politico, Reuters, The Washington Post, BBC News, and The National Review. Police in Paris used tear gas and water cannons to disperse a 3,000-strong pro-Palestinian demonstration at Place de la République, where protesters waved Palestinian flags and chanted Israel murderer on Thursday making 10 arrests. 10 others were also arrested at another rally in Lille. This comes as the French government announced a systematic ban on all pro-Palestinian protests due to their alleged potential to generate public order disturbances. With Interior Minister Gerard Damanin stating that the organization of these protests should lead to arrests. According to Darmanin, more than 100 anti-Semitic cases have been reported in the country since Hamas attacked Israel last Saturday, prompting President Emmanuel Macron to urge French citizens to remain united and not to confuse the Palestinian cause with the justification of terrorism. Meanwhile, without directly referring to Hamas, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban on Friday said that Budapest will not allow rallies supporting, quote, terrorist organizations, as that would pose a terror threat to Hungarian citizens. These bans follow a call from a former leader of Hamas for Muslims worldwide to stage demonstrations in support of Palestinians in a day of rage on Friday, urging people living in countries near the Gaza Strip to join the fighting against Israel. Pro-Palestinian demonstrators took to the streets on Friday around the world in several countries with large Muslim populations, such as Bangladesh, Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey. Clashes between protesters and police were reported in Berlin, as Germany also banned all activity lauding the Hamas attack. 
Thank you, Scott. As you can imagine, with a story like this, it's going to generate a big spin. So we've got a few narratives to go through, beginning with narrative A from Le Monde. The Israel-Hamas conflict can stoke tensions in France, home to some of Europe's largest Muslim and Jewish populations. While Israel defends itself, the French government is duty-bound to ensure the conflict doesn't destabilize the country. Anti-Semitism and terrorism must be condemned, irrespective of who perpetuates it. And Anadolu Agency brings us narrative B. The ban is a threat to freedom of expression. Europe, particularly France, is governed by civil law, which means every citizen has the right to take a stand and protest. It's unfair to forbid natives from supporting the Palestinian people when no such restrictions have been announced for people standing by Israel. The spin is going to continue to narrative C by Bloomberg. Israel is at war with Hamas, not with Palestine. However, the definition between pro-Palestine and pro-Hamas is blurred in the latest conflict. While the protesters must refrain from glorifying the terrorists, the governments mustn't set a dangerous precedent by threatening the full force of law. And this quadrilogy of narratives concludes with this nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 55% chance that Hamas will lose control of Gaza before 2024. Russia launches a major offensive in eastern Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Post. Understanding war in Ukranska Pravda. Russia has this week launched a major assault on the city of Avdivka in the eastern Donetsk region, reportedly mobilizing thousands of troops and columns of armored vehicles for the attack. According to the Institute for the Study of War, a U.S. military-affiliated think tank that tracks battlefield progress in the report, Russia has taken roughly 1.7 square miles, or 4.5 square kilometers, of territory since launching the operation on October 10. However, the assault has not come without costs for Russia. The institute said, Geolocated footage indicates the Russian forces have likely lost at least a battalion tactical group's worth of armored vehicles in offensive operations around Avdivka. A reliable ex-user observed on October 12th that Ukrainian forces destroyed 33 Russian armored vehicles and 15 tanks since October 10th. Vitaly Barabash, head of Ukraine's military administration in Avdivka, described the situation as, quote, fierce and without a break on Friday. Barabash stated that Russian forces were using, quote, everything they have, including small firearms, artillery, and aircraft. He added that despite the ferocity of attacks, Ukrainian forces have been holding their positions for four days and said, quote, I am sure they will withstand while praising their battlefield prowess. Barabash further stated that in the past day, one civilian was killed and four were injured in Russian attacks. He warned that the real death toll may be higher, with several civilians likely trapped under the rubble of damaged buildings, but have yet to be reached. Thanks, Adam. We have a pro-Ukraine narrative from the new voice of Ukraine. With Russian President Vladimir Putin's birthday on October 7th, Ukraine's intelligence services were aware of the coming attack on Adivka, meant as a present for him. This, along with the fact that forces told the locals of their plans in their downtime, meant Ukraine's forces were fully prepared and are now repelling and destroying the enemy attack. And there's a pro-Russia narrative provided by TASS. An offensive supported by aircraft, artillery, and heavy flamethrower systems, Russia continues to improve its positions in the Adivka direction and continues to gain ground. 
And Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative. They predict that there's a 1% chance there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before 2023. In an update to yesterday's story on the GOP House Speaker race, Scalise is now out and Jordan is the new nominee. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, BBC News, USA Today, Voice of America, CNN, and the Associated Press. Republicans in the House of Representatives have selected Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, to be their nominee in the party's latest bid to elect a House Speaker. His nomination follows intensive discussions by the GOP and now begins what could be a challenging selection process for the Ohio lawmaker. This comes as House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, Republican of Louisiana, on Thursday announced the end of his bid to become the chamber's speaker, citing individuals with personal interests who refused to back him. Previously, Scalise on Wednesday defeated Jordan, Republican of Ohio, 113-99, as part of an internal party contest for the nomination. Scalise would have needed a majority of 217 on the House floor to be elected speaker, and Jordan must reach the same figure. Scalise told reporters his bid to be speaker wasn't going to happen, explaining that there were schisms that have yet to get resolved. Without an elected speaker, the House can't bring forward or pass legislation. The role was vacated last week when Representative Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, was voted out. Without new legislation, the U.S. faces a federal shutdown in November. A bipartisan resolution in support of Israel is also currently unable to proceed. Thank you, Scott. As you can imagine, with a story like this, we are going to have some politically motivated spins. And we're going to start off with a Republican narrative provided by PJ Media. Scalise made the right move backing out. It's just too bad he didn't do it sooner because then we could have figured out where the rest of the caucus stands on Jordan or the alternatives. Jordan could be a perfect fit for this role. And whether it's him or ultimately someone else, Republicans very soon intend to converge on a solution. And the Atlanta Journal-Constitution brings us the Democratic narrative. All Republicans have done since McCarthy's ousting is fight amongst themselves. Such embarrassing behavior is not fit for any office, let alone within the House. Meanwhile, Democrats remain a unified force within the U.S., which should pay off in the long run, particularly the next time voters go to the polls to pick a new House majority. And the Metaculous Prediction community have an opinion. They think that there's a 54% chance that Jim Jordan will be elected Speaker of the House. In a new report, the U.S. must prepare for simultaneous wars with China and Russia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Financial Times, Reuters, the Institute for Defense Analyses, the Washington Times, and Defense News. A new bipartisan congressional report released Thursday calls on the U.S. to step up its military readiness for potential simultaneous wars with China and Russia and to expand its conventional and nuclear arms arsenal. The 160-page report issued by the Congressional Commission on the Strategic Posture of the U.S. argues that Washington is ill-prepared and lacks a comprehensive strategy to deal with the prospect of facing two states with having the same nuclear power as U.S. forces. The panel added that the U.S. must fully fund its 30-year nuclear weapons modernization program that started in 2010, including the production of additional stealth bombers and new nuclear submarines to deter and defeat both adversaries simultaneously. 
Established by the FY 2022 National Defense Authorization Act, it assesses threats to the U.S. and makes strategic recommendations. The commission also called for the deployment of more tactical nuclear weapons in Asia and Europe, while pushing for the strengthening and expansion of alliances. China's stockpile of nuclear warheads is estimated to grow at least 1,500 warheads by 2035, up from 400 in 2021, while Russia's nuclear forces will likely remain the world's largest by 2035, with the new U.S. strategy needing to take into account the potential for joint military action by Beijing and Moscow. According to a July Congressional Budget Office report, Modernizing the U.S. nuclear force would cost $756 billion over the next decade. This figure does not include the cost of the additional nuclear initiatives recommended by the report, which further warned the U.S. lacks the industrial capacity to keep up with the nuclear modernization requirements. We have some diametrically opposed narratives on this story. The establishment critical narrative comes from common dreams. The congressional report sounds more like a military-industrial complex public relations stunt than a serious study. Its conclusions are irresponsible given that any decision to boost the number of U.S. strategic nuclear weapons risks triggering a new nuclear arms race with China and Russia. Instead of following the archaic Cold War logic with unpredictable consequences for the U.S. and the world, it would be in the U.S. national security interest to pursue arms control and disarmament diplomacy. And Defense News is going to counter that with a pro-establishment narrative. The report is a powerful reminder that the U.S. needs to adjust its strategic posture and strengthen its nuclear deterrent. Given China and Russia's nuclear modernization push and aggressive foreign policies, if Washington hopes to protect the rules-based international order, the U.S. nuclear strategy must remain effective in a two-nuclear-peer arena, which also requires higher defense spending. The Cold War teaches that autocratic regimes understand only the language of deterrence. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time they predict that there's a 50% chance that the next great power war will occur by July 2048. You know, this this sounds this almost sounds like a Christmas list because, you know, it's that time of the year. You got kids, Scott. I got kids. Yep. Gotta, you know, gotta, uh, we shouldn't have this. left that military-industrial complex catalog out. Now we're on the hook for all this stuff. <laughs> Senator Menendez is indicted as a foreign agent. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Al Jazeera, Newsweek, CBS, and Reuters. On Thursday, U.S. Senator Bob Menendez, Democrat of New Jersey, was charged with conspiring to act as an agent of the Egyptian government for many years while he was the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Previously, Menendez and his wife, Nadine, were indicted on federal charges that they accepted bribes in exchange for crafting policy favorable to the Egyptian government. The new charge, which was included in a revised indictment, accuses Menendez of failing to register with the U.S. DOJ as a foreign agent, while allegedly working on behalf of Egyptian military and intelligence officials between 2018 and 2022. Menendez issued a statement denying the latest charge while citing his loyalty to only one country, the United States of America, and describing the addition of the new charge as an attempt to wear someone down, adding he will not succumb to this tactic. Menendez temporarily stepped down from his role as chair of the Foreign Relations Committee 
after the initial charges, but so far has rejected numerous calls for him to resign from the Senate. Thank you, Scott, for laying out the facts. We're going to start these spins with a Democratic narrative provided by MSNBC. Everyone in the U.S. is innocent until proven guilty, but these charges against Menendez are too serious for him to still be able to carry out his duties in the Senate. An overwhelming number of his Democratic colleagues have called for him to resign, and it says something about Republicans who are likely looking to benefit from this that they haven't done the same. And the Federalist brings us the Republican narrative. Calls for the senator's resignation are years too late. Menendez, who similarly faced corruption charges in 2015, retained his party's support and was re-elected in 2018. The only thing that the Democrats' outrage today demonstrates is that they were willfully blind to his misconduct until it no longer benefited them. And the nerds think that there's a 51% chance that Menendez will still represent New Jersey in the Senate on February 1st, 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. And in our final story today, Japan seeks to revoke the Unification Church's legal status. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Japan Today, Associated Press, and The Diplomat. On Thursday, the Japanese government announced that it would ask a court to strip the Unification Church of its legal status as a religion, after investigations into former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's assassination raised questions about the church's fundraising and business practices. Claiming that the church violated civil law, Japan's education minister Masahiro Moriyama said the government is investigating its activities because it, quote, deviated from the intended purpose of a religious corporation. The government reportedly proposed seeking the church's revocation after the Agency for Cultural Affairs analyzed testimonies from at least 169 people allegedly harmed by its fundraising tactics and found 32 cases of civil lawsuits acknowledging damages worth 2.2 billion yen, or $14.7 million. Though the South Korea-based church, which obtained legal status as a religious organization in Japan in 1968, acknowledges the issue of excessive donations and has proposed further reforms. It insists the problem was resolved years ago. If the court grants the order, the Unification Church will become the first religious organization to lose its legal status under a civil code violation. In two earlier cases, the Aum Shinrikyo Doomsday Cult and the Moyo Kakuji Group both lost their legal status due to criminal charges. While the order will strip the church of its religious corporation status and associated tax benefits, the organization will still be allowed to exist and to conduct activities in Japan. Thanks for that final story, Adam. Financial Times brings us the pro-establishment narrative. The Unification Church solicits substantial donations that bankrupt the families of its followers. It's about time the church lost its legal status as it exploits members, disrupts their lives, and impinges on their freedoms. Bitter Winter is going to counter that with an establishment critical narrative. It's unfortunate that the Japanese government has decided to make such a drastic and punitive decision based on the biased information and campaigning of a group of profit-driven left-wing lawyers. The Unification Church is a legitimate religion, and its members deserve freedom to express and practice their beliefs. And Metaculus brings us a final nerd narrative. This time they say there's a 50% chance that at least 20% of the global population will identify as religiously unaffiliated in 2050. 
Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, October 14th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers, and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. Then for each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on, and then the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or you can download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Scott Wallace, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Thank you.